The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Well, did you see it? Maybe your security camera captured it. That fireball that lit up the night sky around 1030 on Saturday night still has people talking. Let me know uh, where you were, what you saw, some of your texts coming in. Ken says we were driving by Joseph uh, Josephberg Airport. It lit up the truck like a strobe. It was unreal and alcoholic, says Jay Lynn. Uh, we were playing slow pit, uh, pitch under lights at uh, Leedy Park at about 10 p.m. We saw that go across the sky fairly slow. It was so cool to see. Well, you you know what? Chris Hurd may have one of the coolest jobs around. He's a professor at the University of Alberta in Earth and Atmospheric Studies. He's also the curator of the U of A Meteorite Collection. This is what he does for a living. He joins us now. Hi, Chris. Hi, how are you? I'm good. So how does one... Well, I'm not... I No, that's okay. I was going to ask you, how did you get to get a cool job like you do? You're a geologist by trade, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, I, I just I apply what I know from uh, setting rocks to setting rocks in space. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so did you see it on Saturday night, Chris? No, no. I was I was camping with the family up at Cold Lake, so I was I was nowhere near, not near enough. So. Not near enough. So from what you've seen from the video, and and the other thing that I learned from all of this is a lot of people have security cameras now. It was is quite uh, remarkable. From what you've seen, what can you tell us about it? Uh, well, it's it's what we would describe as a as a fireball, um, or sometimes a, a what's called a bolide, which is a way of saying it's a rock coming in from space. Um, most of the you know uh, sort of nighttime things that you see in the summer would be shooting stars, but those could be the size of a grain of sand mm. coming through the atmosphere, and nothing makes it to the ground. In this case, we're talking much bigger than that. Um, I, I'm you know on the on the sort of scale of a meter across, maybe we don't exactly know yet. Uh, and then it comes in screaming through the atmosphere and heats up on the outside and breaks up and then new surfaces are, are kind of exposed and, and they heat up and then you, we get this fireball. Hmm. So we think that's what it is. It's, <laughs> rock from space. It's a rock from space. <laughs> now I've heard about these, what, bol- the, you mentioned the bolides and the super bolides. Is that just like depending on the size of the, uh, whatever it is that comes screaming into into the atmosphere? That's right. Okay. Yeah. But the general kind of term is fireball, um, <laughs> which is, you know, which is sort of self-describing. So, Chris, how um, how would you go about at this point, or how would um, people be going uh, about at this point, trying to figure out where it may have landed or where pieces of it may have landed? Well, um, there's a couple things. One is absolutely keep the eyewitness reports coming in. Uh, you can either send them to us at the university or send them to the TELUS World of Science. Uh, we're working together on that, sort of making sure that we, we share information. Uh, because uh, the more people that have seen this from different sides of the, the fireball, so from different angles, the better. It helps us kind of nail down where, or sort of narrow down where it's likely to have fallen. The other part of, of this, though, is is we really tr- want to try to get the trajectory, that is like the path of the, the fireball, the rock itself as it burned up in the atmosphere in three dimensions. So for that, we need to have really good observatories from different sides of the, the fireball. Fortunately, we have an observatory, a, a really good camera, a, a set of one of several next generation uh, cameras exactly for this purpose that was set up at Vermilion at Lakeland College. Uh, 
last fall. Mm. And so it worked, and it picked it up. So oh. we're going to see what we can find from that. Uh, we also have one at Miquelon Lake. Unfortunately, um, it's not clear whether it was working. Oh, we made well. sure it's back online today, but so we'll see. And then we have a couple other leads that we're, we're following. But uh, I learned, too, that when people have a lot of doorbell cameras. I had <laughs> no idea that there were so many doorbell cameras. And those are awesome. Uh, unfortunately, the thing with those is that they're not what we call calibrated. In other words, you know, somebody would have to kind of come out and measure, you know, exactly what direction your doorbell camera is looking at and yeah. where the sky is looking. So, so we don't really have that. So it, it, it's great to contribute to the whole, you know, event and the knowledge, but it, it won't tell us exactly the track. So we're, we're, we're pursuing those other, we're pursuing those two things, sort of eyeball or eyeball eyewitness <laughs> reports and the, uh, the sort of these dedicated observatory results. And uh, we're trying to nail it, nail it down, trying to figure out where the meteorites might have fallen. And Chris, do we have kind of like a, a general idea of the path? Like which direction? Yes. <laughs> um, it kind of came uh, from the north, northeast to the south, southwest. Mm. Uh, probably over Elk Island National Park, and yeah sort of south from there exactly where we're not clear if the american meteor society has people can report there and they they, they have what they've calculated as the track the the end of it might have been over new sarepta oh wow uh, but but the thing there though and this is a really key point is that the fireball is what you see when the rock is hot on the outside and, and glowing but then eventually that rock slows down in the atmosphere, and when it get, it stops moving quickly, it's no longer bright. And that point, which we call the end point, that can be 15 or 20 kilometers altitude still. Oh, boy. So it still has a long way to go in what we call dark flight. The rocks mm -hmm. are dropping like rocks with no, you know, no glow coming from them. And so that's the part that we're trying. We have to kind of model, and we have to try to figure out other ways of sort of figuring out um, where the rocks went from that point in the sky, from the end point. To the ground so that's really what we're working on so, now so really a, a needle in a in a haystack yes yes, yes. well it's, we haven't even gotten to the haystack no. yet, to be honest. because once we have an area where it could have fallen then we're going to have to get out there and start looking and, and seeing what we can find and then you're really looking and yeah for the needle in the haystack do you have any idea and again i this is i mean you're the expert here and i'm just i'm just a curious um you know 40 something year old kid who just thinks this is really really cool do you have any idea how how big this could have been before it broke up well i said you know earlier i said on the scale of a meter that's a guess a um, meter but okay. you know so but we can we can compare with something that we know so the the buzzard coulee one that was the fireball in november of 2008 that a lot of people saw because it was at 5 30 in the evening and it, the meteorites fell in saskatchewan south of lloyd minster yeah that one the original rock was the size of a desk so maybe wow. two meters across and several metric tons, six, six metric tons or something like that, um, of, of material when it came in the top of the atmosphere and there were like a thousand pieces or something that landed on the ground. This one was not as bright as that. And the brightness relates to, you know, the size of the object. Okay. So that's why I'm sort of giving that ballpark estimate of a meter. Um, again, that's that's <laughs> completely a ballpark. <laughs> uh, Chris Hurd joining us uh, this afternoon. Um, you know, I, I wonder how many times 
you know, something like this happens in unpopulated areas that, you know, never get uh, accounted for and, and and never get seen. Do we know how often um, there are, there are uh, space rocks coming in to the atmosphere like we saw on the weekend or, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a smaller level? Yeah, I've heard different estimates. Um, one number that you'll hear is 100 tons of space debris every day, wow. but that is including dust. Oh, so that's, okay. there's a lot of stuff that comes in, like those shooting stars, a tiny little bit of dust coming in, and you add, a, add it all up all over the Earth. Um, but something maybe the size of a grapefruit or softball sort of thing every few days somewhere mm. over the surface of the Earth. So it's a little, yeah, it's a little hard to say. I think what we have here, what we had in that other event I mentioned uh, in 2008, was kind of the convergence of, you know, a decent-sized rock coming through the atmosphere at a time and in a location, as you said, near a populated area, and and in this day and age with doorbell cameras, apparently, <laughs> um, so that lots of people could actually see the and witness the event. Yeah, it was. I mean, between doorbell cameras and Twitter, I mean, it was it was something else to to, to watch on Saturday evening. Um, you were um, you were involved with. Uh, and I'm gonna. I want to say, is it the Tagish Tagish Lake, BC? Mm-hmm. Is is it Tagish? Is that how you say it? That's right. Yeah. Um, and tell us about your involvement with 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 that. That was a meteorite that landed on Earth. What January 18th of 2000. Um, and um, then were, were you guys were able to f- to find the the remnants of it? Can you tell us about that that whole experience? That's a that's a really remarkable one. That that was um, yeah. That I was not in. I was actually in grad school in the U.S. at the time. Um, but the the event was something else, and it was it was widely seen over northern B.C. and Alberta and the Yukon and Alaska. Uh, so very bright fireball and uh, very quite a sizable chunk of rock. The difference there is that it was made of different stuff and it broke up and landed on the ice, the frozen surface of Tagish Lake in the middle of January. Mm. And um, there was a local resident, a resident of Atlin, B.C., who was out on the lake a few days later and he came across the meteorites and collected them. Um, and the, the key thing about that one, it's a rare type of meteorite where it has... Uh, organic stuff in it not not life but like sort of building blocks of life that are from space and uh, are preserved in it and the way he collected it and the way it's been kept ever since um is cold without touching it with anybody's hands because avoiding you know finger grease and contamination that yeah. sort of thing so it, it i i led a a, um, a group of canadian institutions to acquire that meteorite in 2006 for the university and for uh the royal ontario museum so we have the the bulk of that meteorite here, and it's really the crown jewel of our collection now. It's it, it we keep it cold. It requires a new facility, requires a new facility to just be able to handle it. Wow! And uh, and it's led to all kinds of other opportunities. And to bring it full circle, you know, we've learned a lot from that experience and from other meteorites about and from our own research in at the university about how best to curate, how best to keep these rocks as pristine and clean as possible after they fall to the earth uh, because the earth has got a lot of stuff on it including life how do we keep it pristine so that we can really say okay what is the are the intrinsic the original kind of parts of this rock from space Um, so if and when we do get out looking for this 
latest meteorite fall, we know exactly. We've learned a lot since the last few years about how best to get out there, collect it in the best possible way, and document and make the most of it and really maximize the science that we'll get from it. And Chris, um, I need to take a quick break here, but I'd like to talk to you more about the U of A's, the, the, about the Meteorite Curation Lab and what you're doing there. Do you have a couple minutes? Can you hold on? Sure. Yeah, All right. I can. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Chris Hurd's going to hold on here. A couple more questions for him. If you have a question for him, let me know at 630-630. Uh, we'll talk more with uh, Chris Hurd, a professor and curator of the University of Alberta Meteorite Collection. But the big fireball we all saw, well, a lot of you saw, anyway, on Saturday night. Stick around. Chris Hurd is joining me this afternoon, professor and curator, University of Alberta, the Meteorite Collection there, in fact, um, uh, instrumental in establishing the university's Meteorite Curation Lab. Chris, so glad to have you here, and we can follow you on Twitter as well, at Space Rock Doc. Um, just as we back up a little bit, a number of people are, are texting in wanting to know, well, if we're out in that new Sarepta area, if, if by chance that's kind of where... The, the pieces may have landed. What are we looking for? Well, I should I should emphasize that New Sarepta is where the end point yes. of the fireball is. So they would be quite a ways from oh, there okay. in all likelihood. So, so yeah, before New Sarepta gets kind of flooded by people, <laughs> <laughs> let's just make sure people know that. Okay, um, so but if, in terms of what yeah. we're looking for, uh, the typical type of meteorite is... Uh, it, it, so what happens when they come through the atmosphere is the outside heats up with friction um, and so the outside of the rock melts and and then it as it slows down it cools off and then it quenches to a dark glass dark brown to black so really fresh meteorites look almost jet black on the outside but typically that fusion it's a crust that forms it's only about a, a millimeter or two thick so think of an even like an eggshell mm. on a you know on a hard-boiled egg so if that eggshell has flaked away in any spots, it's usually a, a lighter, much lighter color on the inside. It's more like a cement gray. Oh, interesting. And that's the typical, that's the, the, at least for the typical type of meteorite that we get, which is, you know, sort of probabilities say that's what it is. Um, that's what you can expect to find. They'll also typically attract a magnet. And by magnet, I mean like a fairly standard fridge magnet. Oh, okay. You can get higher power magnets or whatever as well, and they'll, they'll stick to those for sure, but like a, a standard fridge magnet. Um, I will also emphasize there's a lot of stuff out there that we call in the business media wrongs <laughs> because they are not the real deal. Uh, but, uh, but people can go to our website and, and find out more about that, how to tell the difference. All right. Um, and if someone wanted to know if you think that there would be a crater uh, with this? No, not in this case. No. Because um, in order to form a crater, uh, you have to, the object itself has to hold together and still be going almost as fast okay. as it was going in space when it first entered the atmosphere. So we, there are cases where that's happened. Uh, but uh, no, in this case, it would have broken up into pieces. And, uh, and we know that because the fire, we saw the fireball start and finish. Ah, okay. And so we know that it's broken up. And then if there's anything left over at the end of that, those are the meteorites that are going to make it to the ground. Are, are, are they worth any money? They can be, depending on the on the type of, of meteorite. Yeah, they can be worth worth money, but it depends on the type, depends on mm. you know, kind of how much, how many pieces are found, that, that sort of mm. thing. Yeah. So at the um, Meteorite Curation Lab, how many specimens do you have there now? So we have about uh, 300 different meteorites mm. from all over the world 
most of the Alberta ones over the, from over the years, uh, which I think they're 18 now. Uh, hopefully 19 soon. <laughs> um, and then uh, we have a number from uh, elsewhere in the world. There's a lot of meteorites that have been recovered from Northwest Africa, places like Morocco in the last few years. And so we have a, yeah, and then we have a total of about 1,800 different uh, specimens of those about 300 meteorites. When you were talking about the uh, the Tagish Lake um, uh, meteorites, the, the specimens from there, and you talked about uh, the person who found them, you know, and the way that he uh, collected them, and um, they're in this cold, this cold curation uh, lab, or I think that's what it was, right. the cold curation lab. How do you study that? Um, are you in there studying those um, in the cold temperatures as well? How do you, how do you look at that by keeping it um, in that cold condition? Well, we, we store it in a freezer. We keep it. We keep the samples at about minus 30. Okay. And then we have this facility, which is um, a walk-in freezer. Uh, but inside the walk-in freezer is a glove box. And the glove box is what people use um, for a bunch of different like, chemistry, other applications, to keep the samples they're working on really, really clean and away from the Earth's atmosphere and other contaminants. So... We have a glove box, and it has the, has argon gas in it, so the gas is a gas that's not going to react with anything, yeah. and it's not the Earth's atmosphere, um, which has a lot of oxygen that we breathe. It's, 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 it has the potential to rust the samples, so we keep it out of that. And then the, um, but what we've done, and this is we put it inside the walk-in freezer, and nobody's ever done that before. Interesting. So NASA Johnson Space Center, where they curate the lunar samples and other meteorites. They have glove boxes like this. Um, they, they keep at room temperature. We needed something that we could do. We could use under cold temperatures. Uh, so we pioneered the use of a glove box inside of the freezer. That's fascinating, yeah. Chris. I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. I know I can tell by my text line that people are really interested in all of this as well. And I mean, it certainly captivates um, people's imaginations. And uh, it's always cool to say, "Hey, I saw that." Thank you so much for this. You're very welcome. Take care now. I look forward to talking okay. to you again sometime. That's uh, Chris Hurd again from the University of uh, Alberta. I mean, if you look at kind of you know the stuff that he's been involved with, absolutely uh, phenomenal. Uh, helped establish the university's meteorite curation lab currently the principal director of the institute for space science exploration and technology uh, multidisciplinary virtual institute at the university of alberta lots to learn there again says uh, they believe it came that that fireball from the north northeast to the south southwest the end of the the fireball part kind of uh, around the new sarepta area but said that it would be about another 15 20k probably after that from uh, anywhere any pieces may have landed anyway fascinating stuff um some of your texts coming in hey jay we watched the whole show from Southside lac labiche looking east southeast tracking south where it broke up and tom and Sherwood park we were camping up by Boyle, and we saw it from there